welcome to the Travelcast, episode 312. The Travelcast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's mid-February, and that means before we get going here with this week's story, I'm obligated to tell you about the annual contest launching this week, which is quite the big deal around here in Drabblecast parts. The fifth annual Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. This is the time of the year when we recognize the authors and artists that you thought did particularly outstanding work in 2013 by setting up a section in our discussion forums for you to nominate your favorite story, travel, and piece of episode artwork from the past year. You can nominate up to five in each of those three categories, Best Feature Story, Best Travel, and Best Episode Art, and we've got them all laid out there in our forum section entitled 2013 People's Choice Awards to view and jog your memory. So head on over to our discussion forums at forums.travelcast.org. If you've never participated there before, you might need to take a minute to register. It really does only take a minute, probably less. And then nominate your five favorite stories, drabbles, and episode art covers from 2013. This round goes till the 1st of March, so get to it. The winners receive engraved fancy schmance Drabblecast plaques, but the winner of the main category, Best Feature Story, receives the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory, a killer goblet engraved and stuffed with appropriate weirdness, resting on a marble plaque that emanates a strange and luminous glow. It's, at the very most, the highest honor a writer in speculative fiction can receive, and, at the very least, something they forget about and are confused by when it arrives in the mail. So do your part to give them the recognition and or mild bewilderment they deserve. Again, it's all happening on our forums at forums.travelcast.org. All right, let's get this party started this week with a 100-word story. This week's 100-word story comes to us from Rachel K. Jones, and it's called Tar Pit, A Love Story. Rachel lives and writes in Atlanta, Georgia, and you've heard her 100-word stories and 100-character stories numerous times on the show. You can keep up with her and her writing at rckjones.wordpress.com. This is a love story about a tree and its hole. From the beginning, they seemed made for each other. They hugged each other's curves, matching bend for bend, a union which grew more perfect with each passing year. It came to a sudden end one day when a ravenous apatosaurus tore up the whole tree by its roots and devoured it. The hole doesn't forget, though, far from it. Nursing its vendetta, it gapes wide, deepens, and fills its heart with black tar. It waits for that murderous, leaf-stuffed bastard to return. Given time, it can devour things, too. Ah, yes, it's Valentine's this week, and love is in the air. Or the ground, as our drabble reminds us. 
Indeed, when the words fall in precede something, it's usually in reference to something pretty awful, right? Like falling in a tar pit or falling in debt, falling into a trap. Yet love, the idea that we would like someone other than ourselves enough to often put them before ourselves, gets a pass and remains something many of us look optimistically forward to falling into. At first glance, you'd think that we don't need love, per se. Love doesn't give us babies. Boners give us babies. There's a boner accounting for nearly every one of you out there listening right now. Whether you like it or not, your own special, sacred, personalized boner that you should stop and thank God or meditate on depending on your beliefs each and every day because nothing is more important or central to the nucleus of your very existence than that one male erection. And I'm getting carried away here, but what I'm trying to say is that love is more than that. In fact, in a lot of cases today, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. Love is something else that we cling to and long for as a species, even when the world around us changes, even perhaps when more than that changes. This week we bring you a monumental story by science fiction giant Frederick Pohl called Day Million. Pohl was one of science fiction's most important authors. Among his many novels are Gateway, which won the John W. Campbell, the Hugo Award, the Locus SF Award, and the Nebula Award, Beyond the Blue Event Horizon, which was a finalist for the Hugo and Nebula Awards, and Gem, which won the 1980 National Book Award in science fiction. Pohl was an award-winning editor of Galaxy Magazine and If, a book editor at Bantam, and served as president of the Science Fiction Writers of America. He was named a Grandmaster of Science Fiction by the SFWA and inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame in 1993. The story is read to you by one of my favorite male voice actors, Mike Boris, who you've heard on our show numerous times in various capacities, including our in-house resident cryptozoologist Connor Chodesworth's German arch-nemesis Wolfgang von Tainthammer. Douche, Chodesworth. Douche. Find out more about Mike's awesomeness and contact him if you need fast and professional voice work at mikeborisaudio.com. So without further ado, we bring you... Day Million by Frederick Pohl. On this day I want to tell you about, which will be about a thousand years from now, there were a boy, a girl, and a love story. Now, although I haven't said much so far, none of it is true. The boy was not what you and I would normally think of as a boy because he was 187 years old. Nor was the girl a girl, for other reasons. And the love story did not entail that sublimation of the urge to rape and concurrent postponement of the instinct to submit, which we are at present understand in such matters. You won't care much for this story if you don't grasp these facts at once. If, however, you will make the effort you'll likely enough find it jam-packed, chock-full, and tip-top crammed with laughter, tears, and poignant sentiment, which may, or may not, be worthwhile. The reason the girl was not a girl was that she was a boy. How angrily you recoil from the page. You say, who the hell wants to read about a pair of queers? Calm yourself. Here are no hot-breathing secrets of perversion for the coterie trade. In fact, if you were to see this girl, you would not guess that she was in any sense a boy. Breasts, two. Vagina, one. Hips, calipogene. Face, hairless. 
supraorbital lobes non-existent. You would term her female at once, although it is true that you might wonder just what species she was a female of, being confused by the tail, the silky pelt, or the gill slits behind each ear. Now you recoil again. Cripes, man, take my word for it. This is a sweet kid, and if you, as a normal male, spent as much as an hour in a room with her, you would bend heaven and earth to get her in the sack. Dora, we will call her that name. Her name was Omicron D-Base, 7 Group Tottergott, S. Doratus, 5314, the last part of which is a color specification corresponding to a shade of green. Dora, I say, was feminine, charming, and cute. I admit she doesn't sound that way. She was, as you might put it, a dancer. Her art involved qualities of intellection and expertise of a very high order, requiring both tremendous natural capacities and endless practice. It was performed in null gravity, and I can best describe it by saying that it was something like the performance of a contortionist and something like classical ballet, maybe resembling Danilova's dying swan. It was also pretty damn sexy, in a symbolic way, to be sure, but face it, most of the things we call sexy are symbolic. You know, except perhaps an exhibitionist's open fly. On day million when Dora danced, the people who saw her panted, and you would too. About this business of her being a boy, it didn't matter to her audiences that genetically she was a male. It wouldn't matter to you, if you were among them, because you wouldn't know it. Not unless you took a biopsy cutting of her flesh and put it under an electron microscope to find the XY chromosome. And it didn't matter to them because they didn't care. Through techniques which are not only complex but haven't yet been discovered, these people were able to determine a great deal about the aptitudes and easements of babies quite a long time before they were born. At about the second horizon of cell division, to be exact when the segmenting egg is becoming a free blastocyst. And then they naturally help these aptitudes along. Wouldn't we? If we find a child with an aptitude for music, we give him a scholarship to Juilliard. If they found a child whose aptitudes were for being a woman, they made him one. As sex had long been dissociated from reproduction, this was relatively easy to do and caused no trouble and no, or at least very little, comment. How much is very little? Oh, about as much as would be caused by our own tampering with divine will by filling a tooth. Less than would be caused by wearing a hearing aid. Does it still sound awful? Then look closely at the next busty babe you see and reflect that she may be a Dora. For adults who are genetically male but somatically female are far from unknown even in our own time. An accident of environment in the womb overwhelms the blueprints of heredity. The difference is that, with us, it happens only by accident, and we don't know about it except rarely, after close study. Whereas the people of Day Million did it often, on purpose, because they wanted to. Well, that's enough to tell you about Dora. It would only confuse you to add that she was seven feet tall and smelled of peanut butter. Let us begin our story. On day million, Dora swam out of her house, entered a transportation tube, was sucked briskly to the surface in its flow of water, and ejected in its plume of spray to an elastic platform in front of her. 
uh, call it her rehearsal hall. Oh, shit, she cried in pretty confusion, reaching out to catch her balance and find herself tumbled against a total stranger, whom we will call Don. They met cute. Don was on his way to have his legs renewed. Love was the farthest thing from his mind. But when, absent-mindedly taking a shortcut across the landing platform for submarinites and finding himself drenched, he discovered his arms full of the loveliest girl he had ever seen. He knew at once they were meant for each other. Will you marry me, he asked. She said softly, Wednesday, and the promise was like a caress. Don was tall, muscular, bronze, and exciting. His name was no more Don than Dora's was Dora, but the personal part of it was Adonis, in tribute to his vibrant maleness, and so we will call him Don for short. His personality color code in angstrom units was 5290, or only a few degrees bluer than Dora's 5314, a measure of what they had intuitively discovered at first sight that they possessed many affinities of taste and interest. I despair of telling you exactly what it was that Don did for a living. I don't mean for the sake of making money. I mean for the sake of giving purpose and meaning to his life, to keep him from going off his nut with boredom. Except to say that it involved a lot of traveling. He traveled in interstellar spaceships. In order to make a spaceship go really fast, about 31 male and 7 genetically female human beings had to do certain things, and Don was one of the 31. Actually, he contemplated options. This involved a lot of exposure to radiation flux, not so much from his own station in the propulsive system as in the spillover from the next stage, where a genetic female preferred selections and the subnuclear particles making the selections she preferred demolished themselves in a shower of quanta. Well, you don't give a rat's ass for that, but it meant that Don had to be clad at all times in a skin of light, resilient, extremely strong copper-colored metal. I have already mentioned this, but you probably thought I meant he was sunburned. More than that, he was a cybernetic man. Most of his ruder parts had been long since replaced with mechanisms of vastly more permanence and use. A cadmium centrifuge, not a heart, pumped his blood. His lungs moved only when he wanted to speak out loud, for a cascade of osmotic filters rebreathed oxygen out of his own wastes. In a way, he probably would have looked peculiar to a man from the 20th century, with his glowing eyes and seven-fingered hands, but to himself, and of course to Dora, he looked mighty manly and grand. In the course of his voyages, Don had circled Proxima Centauri, Procyon, and the puzzling worlds of Miraceti. He had carried agricultural templates to the planets of Canopus and brought back warm, witty pets from the pale companion of Aldebaran. Blue hot or red cool, he had seen a thousand stars in their ten thousand planets. He had, in fact, been traveling the star lanes with only brief leaves on Earth for pushing two centuries. But you don't care about that, either. It is people that make stories, not the circumstances they find themselves in and you want to hear about these two people. Well, they made it. The great thing they had for each other grew and flowered and burst into fruition on Wednesday, just as Dora had promised. They met at the encoding room with a couple of well-wishing friends apiece to cheer them on, 
and while their identities were being taped and stored, they smiled and whispered to each other, and bore the jokes of their friends with blushing repartee. They then exchanged their mathematical analogues and went away, Dora to her dwelling beneath the surface of the sea, and Don to his ship. It was an ideal, really. They lived happily ever after, or, anyway, until they decided not to bother any more and died. Of course, they never set eyes on each other again. Oh, I can see you now, you eaters of charcoal-broiled steak, scratching an incipient bunion with one hand and holding this story with the other, while the stereo plays de Indy or Monk. You don't believe a word of it, do you? Not for one minute. People wouldn't live like that, you say, in an irritated and not amused grunt as you get up to put fresh ice in a stale drink. And yet there's Dora, hurrying back through the flushing commuter pipes toward her underwater home. She prefers it there, has had herself somatically altered to breathe the stuff. If I tell you with what sweet fulfillment she fits the recorded analog of Don into the symbol manipulator, hooks herself in and turns herself on, if I try to tell you any of that, you will simply stare, or glare, and grumble, what the hell kind of lovemaking is this? And yet I assure you, friend, I really do assure you that Dora's ecstasies are as creamy and passionate as any of James Bond's lady spies, and one hell of a lot more so than anything you and I are going to find in real life. Go ahead, glare and grumble. Dora doesn't care. If she thinks of you at all, her thirty times great-great-grandfather, she thinks you're a pretty primordial sort of brute. You are. Why, Dora is farther removed from you than you are from the Australopithecines of five thousand centuries ago. You could not swim a second in the strong currents of her life. You don't think progress goes in a straight line, do you? Do you recognize that it is an ascending, accelerating, maybe even exponential curve? It takes hell's own time to get started, but when it goes, it goes like a bomb. And you, you scotch-drinking steak-eater in your relaxicizer chair, you've just barely lighted the primacord of the fuse. What is it now, the six or seven hundred thousandth day after Christ? Dora lives in day million. A thousand years from now, her body fats are polyunsaturated, like Crisco. Her wastes are hemodialysized out of her bloodstream while she sleeps. That means she doesn't have to go to the bathroom. On whim, to pass a slow half-hour, she can command more energy than the entire nation of Portugal can spend today, and use it to launch a weekend satellite or remold a crater on the moon. She loves Don very much. She keeps his every gesture, mannerism, nuance, touch of hand, thrill of intercourse, passion of kiss, stored in a symbolic mathematical form. And when she wants him, all she has to do is turn the machine on, and she has him. And Don, of course, has Dora. Adrift on a sponson city a few hundred yards over her head and orbiting Arcturus, fifty light-years away, Don has only to command his own symbol manipulator to rescue Dora from her ferrite files and bring her to life for him. And there she is. And rapturously, tirelessly, they bawl all night. Not in the flesh, of course. But then his flesh has been extensively altered, and it wouldn't really be much fun. He doesn't need the flesh for pleasure. Genital organs feel nothing. Neither do hands, nor breasts, nor lips. They are only receptors, accepting and transmitting impulses. It is the brain that feels. It is the interpretation of these impulses that makes agony or orgasm. 
and Don's symbol manipulator gives him the analog of cuddling, the analog of kissing, the analog of wildest, most ardent hours with the eternal, exquisite, and incorruptible analog of Dora. Or Diane. Or Sweet Rose. Or Laughing Alicia. For to be sure, they have each of them exchanged analogs before. And will again. Balls, you say. It looks crazy to me. And you, with your aftershave lotion and your little red car, pushing papers across a desk all day and chasing tail all night. Tell me, just how the hell do you think you would look to Tiglath Pileser, say, or Attila the Hun? Life will be profoundly different a thousand years from now. Of this, we can be sure. Yet, even today, we can barely make sense of relationships, it seems, with so many behaviors, attitudes, and laws that are often confusing and even contradictory. We naturally want to twist things to make them more complicated, it seems, for numerous reasons. But the most honest love stories are the simplest love stories, are they not? And no matter how humans transcend, isn't it a wonderful thought, perhaps even a likely thought, that simple and sincere love will always transcend along with us? Anyways, hope you enjoyed our story this week. If you did, remember to throw us a donation via the subscription links off our website, travelcast.org. You'll feel good about yourself because it's a kick-ass thing you're doing, helping a small but hard-working webzine pay authors for their work and bring audiences thought-provoking and entertaining stories. We greatly appreciate whatever you can give. Once again, our webpage, where you can easily donate any amount via PayPal, credit card, or debit card, is www.travelcast.org. All right, let's hit our 100-character story winner this week by Algernon Sidney is Dead with this one here. He said he loved me, and he planted flowers in my name. So I kissed him until his toes curled. I'd loathed old Miss Flowers. Excellent. You there at home, try writing a story using only 100 characters, not counting spaces. It's a fun way to exercise the creative muscles in your brain. Post your stories in the Drabblecast discussion forums. You might be next week's winner. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter for the winners early each week at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, tell a friend, write us a review on iTunes, spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, CRN Surf. CRN Surf is an artistic collaboration between Sambi and Albert C. Through illustration and design, they tackle such themes as mysticism, death, and the strange. Their work is divided into individual portfolios, one being entirely dedicated to the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Their work can be found online at crnsurf.com. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, and David Carvin. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you it's people that make stories, not the circumstances they find themselves in. Mm-hmm.